Well, well the answer is it, it brings some temporary relief. But what's the long-term consequences of this going to be? Good or bad? Absolutely disastrous. And we could just pause there. This is one of the temptations that, that you see over and over and over and over again, God's people facing in the Old Testament, where they find themselves facing some sort of significant trial, a significant challenge. And the question is, are they going to trust God and continue to follow God? Or are they going to decide to do things their own way and step outside of God's commandments for release? So we could give a hundred examples, but this is, this is Abraham and Sarah in a nutshell, isn't it? Where God has given Abraham this promise. I'm going to give you a son. The son hasn't come. Abraham's old, Sarah is barren, and so what did they decide to do? Well, we'll do it ourselves, and we'll step outside of God's commandments, and we're going to bring her maidservant into the bedroom. Well, it brought a son to them, right? So it gave them what they were looking for, didn't it? Well, it, it brought what looked like immediate help, but how did that turn out for them? It turned out disastrous. Okay, so one of the challenges you and I will constantly face is there's the temptation to sacrifice fidelity to God on the altar of expediency. In other words, we'll sacrifice our faithfulness and our obedience to God in order to get some temporary relief. Now, when we talk about faith in God, we're not talking about sitting on our hands. That's not what faith in God is, right? Faith in God just means we keep trusting in the Lord and we keep obeying the Lord come what may. So we're going to constantly face situations where we can choose to either stay true to the Lord, follow the Lord, and maybe deal with harsh consequences because of it, or we can step away from following the Lord and maybe sail through scot-free. And the question in those situations is, what will we do? Because going the other way might bring temporary relief, but going the other way always brings long-term disaster. So Ahaz gets him some temporary relief. Tiglath-Pileser moves down and, and drives out the army of Israel and the army of Syria. Well, let's see what happens next. Pick up in verse 10. Now King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and saw an altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest to the design of the altar and its pattern according to all its workmanship. And then Uriah the priest built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz came back from Damascus. And when the king came back from Damascus, the king saw the altar. And the king approached the altar and made offerings on it. So he burned his burnt offering and his grain offering and he poured his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. Do you see what's happening here? So once Ahaz is delivered, he now has to pay homage to his new savior. So he takes a trip up to Syria to see Tiglath-Pileser. And while he's there, he sees something that catches his eye. He sees this altar, uh, yeah, this altar that is unlike anything he has ever seen before. He wants one. And so he makes a, a drawing of it and he sends it back home to Uriah the priest to build him a replica. And by the time he gets back home, this new altar has been built and, 
And Ahaz immediately starts using it. Now, now think, who, who is supposed to offer sacrifices? The priest. Where are they supposed to offer sacrifices? Well, in the temple, God has, has commanded them to build a certain kind of altar. There's this bronze altar that sits out in front of the temple. That's where they're supposed to offer these different sacrifices. But King Ahaz has moved in, and he's, he's found a better way. It's like he's gone to Assyria, and, and he thinks the Assyrian way of worship is an improvement on their way. So he's going to bring back what he learned from Assyria and freshen up their worship. And so he brings back the Assyrian altar, and he now bring, moves it into the temple for them to begin offering their own sacrifices to God. And there are, there are a dozen application points we can make there. I think one of the ones we should make is, it's just a good reminder to us, worship is not a free-for-all. We're not free to worship God however we want. That's not how it works. We don't get to find anything that we like out there in the world and just kind of sprinkle a little Christian dust on it and bring it into the church, and that's how we're going to start worshiping God now. God had told Israel how to worship. He had told them where and when and how and, and that, in, in many ways, is still true. Okay, this is, this is why the regulative principle of worship matters. That when we gather together for worship, we can only worship in the ways God has commanded. We can read the word, preach the word, pray the word, sing the word, and show the word in the ordinances. But we're not free to just do whatever. So our goal in worship, listen, our goal in worship is not innovation. It's not to keep coming up with new, fresh, creative ways to worship God in our gatherings. That's not what God's called us to. I'll spend just a minute on this. If you're familiar with, with all the things that were transpiring in the second great awakening, this is a great point to talk about that. So the, there were two, these two great early movements of God, eh, one of them at least, movements of God in our country, but they had completely different tones to them. So the first great awakening was this movement of God where the people are just committed to prayer, there's a renewed zeal in the pulpit, there's a uh, fresh emphasis on the word of God, and in the middle of that, this is, this is Jonathan Edwards and uh, uh, John Wesley and George Whitfield. well in the middle of that, God just chose to work in a special way. He just cho cho chose to pour out his grace and his spirit, and there's this great work of God, and all these folks are saved. Well, fast forward a while and you come to the Second Great Awakening. What's happening in the Second Great Awakening is, is they want to see what happened in the First Great Awakening. They want to see this great movement of God, but the idea that developed was, well, so let's develop the steps that will get us this great movement of God. So they came up with a formula that basically said, hey, there's a spiritual formula you can follow. One plus one plus one equals a revival. So if you do these things and follow these steps, God's going to bring this great work like happened in the first great awakening. And they were known as the, the new measures of revival during the second great awakening. This is the Charles Finney's of the world who come on the scene. And they start doing these new things. It becomes their, their view of conversion is different. So the first great awakening is the idea that conversion is a miraculous work of God. God does it. Well, the second great awakening is the idea that the main thing you need to do is you just need to get people to make a decision. It's all about them just making a decision of the will so it becomes much more, uh, much more high pressure, much more manipulative. And so Finney starts using what he calls the anxious bitch. You need to get people just to do some decision of the will. Get them to raise a hand, get them to come down front to the anxious bitch, and that's how you know that God's working. Okay, this is, by the way, this is when the whole 
um, modern altar call system began. It began in the 1800s. First 1800 years of Christianity did not, did not have it. But the, the new way of thinking about the work of God in conversion said there's got to be some visible physical sign. And you should right away count whoever does a sign. And so they're counting the numbers. This wasn't happening in the first great awakening. First great awakening, they believe the evidence of real conversion was seen over time, right? That there's perseverance. Second great awakening, whatever happens in the service, anything, anybody who comes to the anxious bench, you count them and send out revival reports. There were 87 saved and you would have these revivals where half the city supposedly would be converted and then a year later, the city would be worse than it was originally. Because what's developed is this idea that there's things that we can start doing that will force revival to come. And it was this, now, now I want to be clear on this. This is not to say that, that having a, an invitation at the end of a service is wrong. Okay, that's not to say that. There's right ways and dangerous ways to do it. But the point is, when we start figuring out ways to innovate and introduce new things, because this is what's going to get the work of the Spirit, we're treading on very, very dangerous ground. Okay, well, that's Ahaz. Ahaz is introducing, and, and by the way, this altar that he brings in isn't just for himself. Look at the next section. He also brought the bronze altar. That was the altar that God had had them build. He also brought the bronze altar, which was before the Lord from the front of the temple, from between the new altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the new altar. And then King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, on the great new altar, burn the morning offering, the evening grain offering, the king's burnt sacrifice, and his grain offering with the burnt offering of all the people of the land, their grain offering and their drink offerings, and sprinkle on all it the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice, and the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. And thus did Uriah the priest, according to all that King Ahaz commanded. So you see what he's doing? He takes the bronze altar and they push it to the side. And in place of it, they put this new altar that they've designed from the Assyrians. And he gives the priest instructions. This is where all the sacrifices are to be offered from now on. The morning and evening sacrifice, the special king's offerings, the, sacri the, the Sabbath offerings. Everything is to be directed toward this new offering. Meanwhile, he says, I'll use the old offering to inquire by. Now that, that phrase is usually used to describe the way that pagan kings would try to get uh, guidance from their gods. So what they would do is they would go to the altar, pagan kings, and they would cut open animals and they believed that, you could, that God would give you direction about the future by looking at the entrails of animals. So they would spread out these entrails and that's how they thought God would give them direction. It was a sort of uh, like divination and so Ahaz has replaced the altar with this Assyrian altar. Meanwhile, he's over here dabbling in occult stuff himself. Okay, that's, that's King Ahaz. It is a, a tragic picture of, of this man's failure. Now, as bad as Ahaz is, there's a man in this story who I think might be even worse than Ahaz. Any ideas? Uriah. What was Uriah's role? Uriah is the high priest. What's the job responsibility of the high priest? To, to protect the worship of Yahweh. To guard the people. To make sure their worship doesn't become bastardized. To shepherd the people well. To guard what's going on. But here Ahaz comes in and Uriah immediately rolls over. 
He puts up no resistance at all. I'm reading a book, and I gotta hurry. I'm reading a book right now um, that I've just started with, a book on uh, manhood. And there's a section that resonated with me where the author is talking about, uh, he basically makes the point there are three kinds of dangerous men. And he says, first is our, you might call them heroes. These are what God's called us to be as men, where we protect and we lead and provide and we use our strength and our resources to care for those God's put around us and defend those who need to be defended. So they're dangerous toward the wrong kinds of people. The second kind of dangerous man is what he called nefarious men. In other words, just bad guys. These are bad people who do bad things and they'll take advantage of others and they'll hurt others. That's King Ahaz. He's just an evil man. But then the third kind of dangerous man is what he calls a weak man. Now, we don't think of a weak man as dangerous, right? They just mind their own business. They're harmless. But he makes the point that that weak men actually do massive amounts of damage because they seem harmless, but they don't have the spiritual fortitude to actually stand on their convictions and actually defend those who need to be defended and protect those who God has put under their care. So that he he quotes someone in the book who says that there's no one more dangerous than a weak man. And I think that's true. That's Uriah. Uriah is a weak man. Yeah, but he's still offering sacrifices, right? He's still serving in the temple, so he's doing okay. No. The flashpoint issue in Israel at this time was their worships being corrupted. Who cares if he's still offering sacrifices? There's a quote from Martin Luther that I I thought about this morning in a conversation with Stephen. This is usually attributed to Martin Luther anyway. Listen to what he says. It applies well here. If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the word of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing him. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefront besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. That's a good quote. His point is, it's easy to be faithful and to be bold and to be courageous on the issues that nobody's arguing about, that aren't flashpoint issues. But the real test of faithfulness comes on those issues where the attacks are the fiercest. Well, the attack is the fiercest where they have on Ahaz on the worship, excuse me, with Uriah on their worship being corrupted and he does not respond to it. So don't be Ahaz. And don't be a Uriah either. Don't don't be the Christian who holds your tongue in the very moment when you are most needed to speak. Don't be the Christian who stays on the sideline in the very moment when the people around you most need you to get in the game. And I should add this. We don't want to be a church of Uriahs. It's easy in church life to just sort of go along to get along. And there's a brother or sister who is walking away from the Lord and they're walking off. And it's easy just to say, look, we shouldn't say anything. We should just be nice. That's not being nice. That's the the height of cruelty. God has called us to more than that. that. That's why one of the pledges we make in our church covenant is we pledge, we will watch over one another in brotherly love. That means God's called us to get involved in the game. We can't just watch people their lives unravel without saying something. You know, in the legal system, you, you can get in trouble if you aid and abet others who are committing a crime. Well, I would argue it is a spiritual crime 
to incessantly aid and abet brothers and sisters in Christ as they walk away from the Lord. We, we cannot allow ourselves to be Uriahs. To me, Uriah is the most disgusting person in this whole account. And so here's how chapter 16 ends, and we'll wrap up. And King Ahaz cut off the panels of the carts and removed the lavers from them. And he took down the sea from the bronze oxen that were under it and put it on a pavement of stone. Also, he removed the Sabbath pavilion, which they built in the temple. And he removed the king's outer entrance from the house of the Lord on account of the king of Assyria. Now, the rest of the acts of Ahaz, which he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Ahaz rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And then Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. What a miserable testimony. So he already paid, he already paid Assyria one time. They'll be pleased with that, right? No, Assyria doesn't want a payment. They want payment plans. So they're demanding more and more. So what does Ahaz do? Well, he goes into the temple and he has to start deconstructing everything in the temple, anything that has precious metal on it. So they had these, these carts, these portable basins they would use for washing. He has to tear those carts apart so he can have the side panels because they were made out of precious man, uh, metal. There was that big bronze basin in the temple that they called the sea. And under it, when God had him design it, there were these um, bronze oxen or bulls and the big basin sat on their back where he needs those bronze oxen. So he picks up the sea, he takes away those bronze oxen because he needs that precious metal and he sets it back down on stone. So he's taking apart even a pavilion, anything that has precious metal in it, he's tearing it down so he can send it off to appease Assyria. You see what's happened? What, what kind of savior is Tiglath-Pileser? Not much of a savior, is he? He's not, he's not a savior, in fact, he's a taskmaster. He's gonna demand more and more and more and more until they have nothing left at all. This was a very poor trade-off on Ahaz's part. Very poor trade-off. Listen, just a quick reminder. There's only one Savior who operates by grace, right? There's only one Savior who doesn't, who doesn't demand that we bring things to appease him, to get his favor. In fact, there's only one Savior who demands that we not come with anything in our hands. This is that, that great Augustus top lady line. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Any other savior you put your trust in will not end up saving you. It will end up destroying you. Okay, that's the story of Ahaz. So we'll stop there tonight. That's, that's 2 Kings 16. So Lord willing, once we get into January, we'll jump back into chapter 17, and we'll see the, the death throes of the northern kingdom. So let's pray, and we'll dismiss.